Welcome to Beyond the Box podcast. The mission of Fairway Cares is to send hope, courage, strength, and love to those facing critical illness, loss of a loved one, or sustained physical trauma through care packages. May you be inspired through these stories as we journey beyond the box. I'm your host, Sherry Anderson, CEO of Fairway Cares, and today my guest is Ronnie Ray, branch ops manager, along with her husband, Tim, uh, who serves as a SVP area manager in Colorado for Fairway. They enjoy golf along with watching their children excel in sports. Taylor is uh, playing basketball at Colorado State University. She is now a sophomore. Haven is 14 and he is a freshman and enjoys golf and basketball. Welcome, Tim and Ronnie. Thank you, Sherry. Thank Thank you you for having us. Well, it is such a delight. and, And prior to starting the recording button, have had such a delight talking to you guys and uh, just learning a whole lot. So a lot of people are not aware, but it is Childhood Cancer Awareness Month. And just wanted to visit about your journey with um, Taylor's diagnosis for cancer, how it's affected you guys. But first of all, let's just ask, how long have you been with Fairway and what brought you to Fairway? Um, What brought us to Fairway was um, just a mutual mutual person that uh, I was actually trying to recruit away from, and he recruited me to to you. So <laughs> that was pretty nice. Um, but um, we've been with Fairway almost ten years, so it'll be ten years in March. Um, so we've been here since two thousand fourteen, and um, love it. Well, we're glad that you're here, and. Uh... You and your family have been on a journey, and part of what we're going to kind of talk about today is childhood cancer, Taylor's diagnosis, and not so much how it affected her, but how does a parent walk through that journey? So can you guys kind of go back to what happened? How did you find out what was happening with Taylor? Well, it's interesting. I'll let Ronnie talk a little bit more about it, but we're right at our three-year anniversary, really close mm-hmm. to us finding out. And in this month right now was the month we had to get her into surgery as fast as possible. So, Taylor um, always played sports and she always had a sensitive stomach and she would she would throw up occasionally, but we always seemed to find an, a reason, maybe not an excuse, but a reason like it was too hot outside when she was playing or she played too hard or too long or she didn't eat before she played. And that probably happened for about a year before we found out. And then one day um, after she had thrown up from playing, she and I'll say it would this is just like three or four times over a year, not often. But she was laying down and had a little bump in her stomach. And when she breathed, it popped out. And she said, look at this, mom, what is this? And she, she was not one to say, I need to go to the doctor, but she was like, I need to go to the doctor. So we called right away and we went in and the doctor thought it was an abdominal hernia. And so we went, she sent us over a few days later to go get an, um, an ultrasound. And during the ultrasound, they found a mass on her liver And they 
didn't really say anything at first. They just said, you know, we think we see something in our liver. We want you to go over to the emergency room right now to get a CT scan. So we knew something was up. And then we went to the to get her a CT scan. And we were at a local hospital, but the larger children's hospital in Colorado is about a half an hour away. And they said, and this is probably seven o'clock at night. And they said, we need to send you over to the larger hospital and, and you'll need to get checked in. And when we got there, we realized we were, we didn't really know what was happening. They said, it's probably not cancer. It's just a mass. We're not sure we need you to go look. And we went there and we realized what floor we were on and it was the cancer floor. And then that's kind of when things hit us. Um, One of the things that we were kind of talking about um, earlier was, or that you kind of communicated uh, through an email earlier today was the fact that exactly what you said for a year, you know, with children, it's so hard to know. Is it part of their growing? Is it just that their fit stomach is sensitive? How do you really know? And sometimes it's so hard to get those diagnoses in because they're not, like you said, they're not doing regular blood work. They're not, you know, you just do different tracking. So the emotion of that happening and kind of share how the next steps took place. Well, I mean, without question, early diagnosis in childhood cancer and in all cancers really are the outcomes are far better than if cancer grows in your body and you have a late diagnosis, stage four, stage three. Um, the problem with children, you know, childhood cancer, like you said, is is that, you know, we all chalk it up to, you know, suck it up and go to school. It's you're fine. Um, and, um, you know, it takes a long time for a child for the, those symptoms to really come out. Um, and in fact, they never really came out in our daughter. It was quite lucky that we recognized it um, or that she recognized it. She knows her own body a little bit. And but her tumor had already grown to 15 centimeters. Um, it's quite large. And um, and it, it was considered close to stage four, if not stage four. And in fact, it was unresectable at the time when we found out. And that that's where our journey really, really started where we probably look back as parents. And of course, we've, we've known people that have, you know, we've, we've known childhood cancer from afar. And I think we all really know it from afar. But once you become, you know, entrenched in it, um, things start exposing themselves greatly. And the first thing exposed itself to us is that, you know, our child, she was diagnosed with a, with a cancer, um, well, actually, um, hepacellular carcinoma as was the cancer that she was diagnosed with in the very start, but it, it's a subset called fibrolamellar carcinoma, which is an extremely rare cancer. Um, one in 5 million uh, get this. There's less than 200 diagnoses a year uh, with this in the world. Um, so it's very rare. It's a small community, but when you have a rare cancer, which most childhood cancers are rare, um, you you don't know where to go, and um, our first within within days of her diagnosis, the doctors basically told us that she was not resectable, meaning they could not do surgery, and that they wanted to put her on a trial that would have given her twelve months to live. Um, and we knew that because Ronnie had done a lot of research about a lot of different liver cancers and. You know, so we immediately tried to get second opinions and 
that was the first thing we realized quickly. Well, within month, within a month, the second opinions are key. Yeah, we when they, you know, Google. I would say Google's your friend, and doctors will tell you to stay off of Google, but you just have to, you know, get rid of the negativity and don't pay attention to the statistics and just look for positive outcomes, positive results, um, the good stories or, you know, the rare things even that people post. Um, Look for the Facebook groups of parents, even though it's really hard to read some of the stuff that people post. There are golden nuggets in there of advice that could really help. And I think just Googling while we were in the hospital, trying to figure out what this possibly is, fibrolamellar was not something that came up on the on the possible cancers. And when we met with the doctors and they told us she had HCC, the hepatocellular that Tim mentioned, um, and they told us she only had like 11 months to live, the trial that they recommended, there was no proof of it working at all. That's what they could tell us, that we would want her on this trial. We need it to start next week. And there's no proof of it working and it will be a very toxic chemo for her to go through. And I think as parents, when you go to the doctor and you have these specialists talk to you, you believe them and you want to depend on them for advice. And your, you know, your first instinct is, of course, let's go. You know, we have to hurry. We have to get on this, whatever the doctor says. But in our situation, just because the outcome was not great in 11 months, there was no alternative but to ask for second opinions. And so we immediately asked them if we could get a second opinion. And they were very helpful. They sent her scans to the two hospitals they thought would give a good second opinion. Um, And in the end, within two weeks, we had 12 opinions from 12 different hospitals across the nation. And that was strictly from advice from Facebook um, advice from the foundations we found. Even we had Fairway send an email out to everybody to ask for specialists. And we actually got one from somebody we didn't even know whose who's friend had this fibromeller, which we didn't think Taylor had that at the time, um, that told us about this surgeon. And then that same surgeon's name came up again from a friend of a friend on, that we found through Facebook. Um, and through the foundation. And that's where we ended up going to that surgeon in New York um, for the surgery. So here we are with Colorado. And had we sat there and the the doctors were great, but had we just listened to the first thing that they told us, she would have started this terrible trial. And we know other people that actually have done that trial. um, And she would have, she would have not survived past 11 months. Wow. You know, you mentioned um, the clinical trials that they have available for adults, but they they don't really know how they're going to affect the children. And that's, wow. So, you know, when I I hear you say you got 12 opinions at first, I'm going, whoa, that's good to have second opinions, but to, to have 12, you know, how do you take those 12 opinions and narrow it down to the right decision? Well, well, I think well, eight of them well, said they couldn't do anything. Yeah, only four of them said they. Yeah, <laughs> so that was easy to get us, rid of them. Yeah. But it's it's interesting when you have you know trusted people that will you know recommend somebody, and you talk to that doctor, and they're like, oh yeah, sorry that 
that one, there's nothing we can do that, that trial would be the best thing, you know, or just no, there's nothing we can do about it. Or some doctors, um, you know, these are, these were recommendations, but there were doctors that um, where the oncology, this particular, sur- our particular surgery for Taylor was, it was surgery was really the only chance at a, at a, a fighting chance of survival. You had to have surgery um, because there are no known treatments that could help for as far as chemo goes. So you, we had to find a surgeon that was willing to do it. And that was the thing is you talk to oncologists and they would have their surgeon review it and their surgeon is not skilled enough or knowledgeable enough to do it. And some surgeons had egos where they will tell you, oh, it's not possible. And we'll say, well, you know, so-and-so said that they could do this. And they say, well, they shouldn't be doing that. You know, okay, so what's the alternative? Like you either try it or she dies. Like you don't, so what's your recommendation? They don't have one. Yeah. And that was one of the things we learned that surgeons that were more skilled or willing to try certain things would get very upset at other surgeons that would say something's not possible instead of saying, you know, that's not my skill set, but I know a surgeon in this area that that might be willing to do it. Like they should be willing to to send it out themselves to other surgeons that are familiar with it rather than saying, if I'm not, if I don't know how I'm not good enough, then nobody should be doing it. I'm sure you ran into lots of, of, you know, attitudes and, you know, I, as you're talking about that, I keep thinking, you know, mindset is such a, a thing we talk about in fairway and how did, you know, Ronnie, you said you had to keep finding the positive. But how did you keep your mindset positive? I mean, when you had so many, you know, you had out of 12, you had eight say, no, we couldn't. But I'm guessing sounds like you and Tim collectively, you know, had a good mindset and were constantly thinking positive. Or did you guys go through the the ebb and flow of maybe one of you was up, you know, while the other one was kind of down? Or how did you as a couple... I mean, maybe balance that or encourage each other or what was that like? Um, I think, I, I think, you know, the day we got home, our, our nature is not to ask for help. And it was either reach out and, you know, make this known so that we can get the help or we just accept it and deal with it. And I think when you're a parent, you just look at your child and you have no choice. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um. I mean, we got into a fighting mode. I remember, I remember the second, you know, second or third day, and I was in a fetal position for most of those two or three days after diagnosis, and didn't know what to do. And I remember getting on the phone with a with a a family member, or not a family member. It was a friend of a, a basketball parent that had been going through cancer before, had 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 gone through cancer and come out the other side. And he told me, he just said, "It's time to fight." And, um, so he said, you can't sit in a fetal position. You have to go. And I think both Ronnie and I having competitive and athletic backgrounds, we just, if we stay in that mode, it's more comfortable for us. It's more comfortable for us to fight for our child and be on the aggressive mode than it is for us to be victims. Um, we just won't allow ourselves to be victims. I think we were fortunate enough to with work where we could depend on our team to handle everything. And we, we basically said, I'm, we're focused on this 
until further notice. And, you know, we'll jump on for emergencies, but that's it. And we had, we were just on conference calls after conference calls and getting copies of scans and overnighting them to hospitals. And um, we have journals and journals of notes from every call that we sat on. And I would say one, one advice to give to parents, if you can, is to record the calls you have with doctors, because after you hang up, you, you don't remember everything. And, and I might hear something different than Tim heard. And then we, we, you know, you could argue about it, but just go back and listen to it or take as many notes as you can, or always make sure there's two people on the call. So you do hear everything that's said um, when you're getting second opinions and third opinions. And I think one of the things that really bothered me when we were getting opinions is, especially with Taylor's cancer, it's such a small community of doctors that do know it. Um, when some of the doctors would badmouth other doctors. And that was really frustrating when you're trying, you're, you know, you're not in the politics of this. You're only in it to get answers for your child. And the doctors are playing politics, you know, against each other and bad mouthing each other that, you know, they're not doing the right research. And, and at first you, you think, well, I need to listen to this because it might be important. But then as the years go on, we've learned a lot of politics are involved too. And it's, you know, you just really need to focus on what's important. Yeah. And that's good advice. Yeah, it's quite shocking in the healthcare industry. We would you just think doctors are that's who you're supposed to listen to, and that's just simply not the case. Second, third, fourth opinions are always important, and I always think of parents that just do stay in that fetal position, which I totally understand, you know, and their their child suffers because of it, um, you know, and that's a shame because of. Politics. I know it's not the parents' fault. It's it's just the it's part of it. It's part of you trusting that what they say is 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 what is real. Well, even especially with Taylor's cancer being it's misdiagnosed as HCC so often that you know in the Facebook group there I just read one the other day where a patient um, was diagnosed as HCC and she found the Facebook group and and through other research, found out that she actually had fibrolamellar and she went back to her own doctor and said, I think I have fibrolamellar, not HCC. And he told her to stay off Google. This is my job. And, and yeah. so you think, oh, I must be wrong. I need to stay off Google. Yeah. But, you know, so it's, it's a journey and we're still in that, you know, we're still in fight mode, even though we're in kind of a, a lull in the storm. Um, but we're constantly... I would say fighting the devil. So Taylor had her surgery that September. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, September 29th. So she had, so you guys were rushing her in to get to do that surgery. And that's, is that the surgery that everybody said, or, you know, that you had the different opinions on? Um, and that's the one you went to New York for? Yes. How long was her recovery from that particular surgery? We were in New York for almost three months, um, New York City. She, her recovery was hard. She relapsed. She had, I think she had seven, seven more surgeries, like because of complications. Yeah. She Um, was in the hospital for seven days at first and then was released. And then she had a fluid buildup. We had to go back three days later. She was there another six days and then she got out and then she had fluid buildup, buildup again. 
I had to go back for three more days. So she had to keep going back in for drainage drains to be installed, inserted. Um, and he, he, they wanted us to stay around because that particular surgeon was one of the few that could do this. So we had to stay in New York um, until she was fully recovered. And we came home, I think, December 15th. So how in the midst of this, you, you know, first of all, she's a, she's an athlete. So anybody who's competitive, anybody who's an athlete, the love of the game, you know, the love of the game calls them to that. She had to obviously give that up at the moment and, and, and compete on a completely different level in something completely unexpected. The same with you guys, you talk about, you know, you both are competitive, right? What kept you guys positive? What kept you guys going during these setbacks that kept coming? I mean, seven surgeries that kept coming. What, how did you encourage each other? How did Taylor encourage, how did you encourage Taylor? Can you share a little bit of insight into what that looked like for you guys? Um, Taylor's built a lot like Ronnie. Um, she's just very internally strong. Like she doesn't show a lot of emotion, whether she's really sad or, or happy. Um, and while we were in New York, I mean, this is the oddness of it was we were in the middle of COVID. So school was, was, there wasn't any school. Everyone was online. So it was no difference that we were in New York versus being in Colorado. And that was unusual. So it was easy for us to be in New York and, you know, students weren't missing Taylor in school. They just heard about it. Um, and the basketball season started late. It didn't start until January 1st. They didn't even start practice till January 1st. And guess who made it to the first day of practice? Taylor. <laughs> wow. She didn't miss anything. Um, and, and she, she was going after it. She was going to get, she was going to come all the way back and play short season basketball for her junior year at, at the high school. And, um, but she had some infusion. Um, we, we, we started chemo treatment. You have to start chemo treatment, even though all the cancer had been removed from her body because of the surgery, they have um, adjunct chemo treatments to keep it away. So she did, a, she did aminotherapy and a chemotherapy treatment. Again, this isn't even, this is off of a clinical trial, but with changes to it. So we're talking about kids that are truly in an experimental mode. And this happens with all kinds of childhood cancers too, where there's no, there's no cohort. Um, there's not enough cohort for people to do clinical trials. So these kids are being tested. I mean, and this is done by, this is actually done by the people that are cowboys that are outside the box that are trying to figure out solutions for children with cancer because they don't want them to go down the, the typical path of some trial that was put on for adults that has been translated to a, to children and it has a survival rate of 42%, you know, or, and they don't, that's not good enough for them. So they're tweaking it and they put in a different, different uh, amino therapy or new other drug to combine with that. And, and most things are in combination now, but Taylor started one of those when she had been too sick because of all the surgeries to start another one, but she started them in January and she had started the season and she had an adverse reaction to it and it almost killed her. Um, 
She had an autoimmune response in her body where her thyroid went crazy and her pancreas shut down. She became a type 1 diabetic at that point because her pancreas shut down. Um, she lost 40 pounds within like a month. And so she, but she still, <laughs> she still didn't miss. Um, she still stayed on the basketball team. She still went to every game, but she didn't play because she was so weak, um, you know, throughout that whole season. And she ended up coming all, she ended up playing in the final four game. She, she couldn't play all the way up until the playoffs enough. And the coach tried to get her in, in the final four game. Um, and she played a little bit in that, but, uh, and they lost in the final four, but that was kind of her journey. She has not missed basketball. She hasn't missed a season. <laughs> um, her junior and senior year, she didn't miss. She was sick because she was on chemotherapy and toxic drugs. And she was, you know, fighting through all those things all the way through her senior year. Um, and then, you know, and then got to college. And since she's been in college, she's gotten off the chemotherapy, um, which has been a wonderful thing for her physically. Um, and so has enabled her to compete at division one level in basketball and be on the team. But, you know, she's still fighting because she is taking some some certain blocker drugs that, you know, they're not good for your body, um, but it's not exactly straight chemotherapy. Um, but, you know, her journey has been very, very difficult and hard. And she's had two relapses where the, the and she's gone in for surgery. Um, and we've gone to Chicago to do that. And she's um, come back to practice a week and a half later. We, we kind of take our cues from her on how we're going to act because you want, we wonder because she'll, you know, when, as soon as she found out, even before she found out, she goes, it's cancer. I know it. It's cancer. And that's her in the hospital. And then she found out and she said, okay, so it's cancer. I knew it. Um, you know, she's not crying. She's not devastated. You know, her first question is, am I going to be able to play basketball? Well, you're going to have to wait a year. And at this point, all we know is that trial that's not going to go well. And we just say, yeah, in a year you'll be able to. And then her second question is, am I going to be able to have kids? Okay. So that's, she's just very matter of fact. And these are the things I need to know. And then, you know, as things get hard, there, there were times of tears, but there were just definitely moments of mom, am I weird? Because I'm not crying about this. You know, I'd say, no, it's just however you want to react, but just remember just if you're crying, it doesn't mean you're weak. You can still be strong and cry that's okay. And she's like, I know I just, she's just not a crier. She's not a hugger. She's not, she just is very matter of fact. And so we just kind of take our cues from that. Of this is how we need to act around her. And, you know, there were many, many tears, but we would, you know, go to the garage and close the door and cry. So she doesn't see it because she, her goal is to get back to basketball. That was her mission. You know, whether we thought she'd ever actually play again, that was her goal and that's what kept her going. So that's what kept us going. And she would just have that motivation to go. And so we just went along with it too. We Act like it's going to be fine. Can't act like it's not going to be fine. And, and we looked for the positive stories on the Facebook page and shared those and um, just, you know, went with those stories. Wow. That's, that's really incredible. I mean, to maintain that positive attitude and, and the reality is, Ronnie and Tim, I'm guessing you guys 
have had other moments of being in the fetal position. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> We've had them this year. You know, it's just, uh, I think they come in waves because you're constantly reminded of the threat that she faces. Even if we feel like, you know, we just FaceTimed with her today from her CSU apartment after practice, we wanted to hear all about practice and how things were going and, and uh, you know, talk about, talk about how she was doing. And, um, you know, then you hang up the phone with her, you feel like everything's normal. And then you, um, then you get reminded of a child that died with her cancer, you know, last week or that we knew. And you get reminded of people that are going through unbelievable pain that we thought we were, they were, we thought they were in good spot and it feels like they're going to pass away, you know? And so we're constantly reminded of the threat and those, those thoughts never leave you. You suppress them the best you can and you fight for the next day, but you know, and you just pray for a cure. I mean, that's really, and ultimately that's what all, you know, parents that have children that have cancer, they're just, they're praying for a cure. They're they're because that's the only way you can get out of this. That's it. Because you do start to realize this is a forever thing. It's not, there's very rare cancers that are curable, that are completely curable. You get on the other side and they're not coming back. And that's besides the, I mean, 15% of childhood cancer cases, if they're cured, get another cancer later in life, a different cancer. Um, because of the toxicity of the treatments um, and these treatments that the children have, they haven't changed since the, some, some of them haven't changed since the 60s. Some of them have been the same since the 80s and they're taking the same toxic drugs. And those toxic drugs wear your body down, create vulnerabilities, create heart issues. And you just always have things that you're worried about with your child now. And you, and you don't, you know, our child doesn't get on Google and she doesn't look at all those things. She lets us do it. Um, she just fights the day, which is perfect for us. Um, but most children aren't like that as they get older. This is a, I mean, mentally, this has got to be just a terrible, terribly hard situation for children as they grow older. And they also have survivor's guilt because they ultimately see and meet children that pass and that have different cancers, that have these cancers. I mean, that, that have their cancer. Um, it is frightening to watch it. I'm just listening to you guys, and I think about the just the incredible emotional roller coaster that you're on daily. You know, not not you know, like having that conversation with with Taylor, and she's strong, and things are good. But you always have that, like you said, in the background, and then you see other people that you you grow close to and become you know part of your family. I'm guessing as you've journeyed cancer together, as you shared information, and you see them pass, and and the grief that you you know walk through with that has got to be just, you know, how do you, how do you, I mean, was there, were you, I want to just ask both of you, were you always on, I mean, you seem so collectively working towards, you know, obviously the, the mission of, of what Taylor wants is to win. I mean, she's going to, she's going to conquer basketball. She's thinking forward. She's going to have a family, you know, how awesome, what an amazing mindset. Um, as you, Tim and Ronnie have worked through this together as parents aside, you know, the moments that you've, you know, cried when she didn't know you were crying. Have there been moments that have been difficult for you as a couple 
that that you know as you walk through this or have you journeyed this together collectively from the beginning what does that kind of look like um i think in the beginning it definitely brought us closer because we had a a mission you know you have a, a um a target that you're both going after and then there were definitely hard times and i think with our with this particular cancer and probably any children's cancer because there are no set treatments there's lots of decisions where where maybe adult cancers you go to the doctor you have this cancer okay here's your treatment plan this is how long it's going to take and this is the plan and this is when it'll be done and and i know not all cancers are like that but that's we have you know other cancer in our families and and at least there was always a, a there was always a road map that you could follow where in our situation there was no roadmap so it was a constant um playing detective and making decisions and researching still and sometimes we disagreed because the her course of treatment was up to us it's like well do you want to do this chemo or this chemo which one do you want to try because everything's experimental you know and we would have to come up with enough research to do it and we we might disagree on what we think she should do. And that could be like life altering if we make the wrong decision and who, you know, is one of us at blame for picking the wrong treatment if we go that direction. So even when she started the chemo, we had two options and with two different hospitals for the chemo treatment. And we, we may agree on it, but we let her have the ultimate decision because she was 16 and old enough to make the decision at the time. Um, you know, we don't want to put that on her either, but I think just making decisions, being the one to have to make that decision. And then when, you know, two weeks later, she's sick and lost all the weight and got diabetes, did we make the wrong decision and trying to stick together, even though it was maybe one person's choice over the others? Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's made us, it's made us closer for sure. Cause we have a directive, but you constantly think about it crumbling. You know, you think you think about the loss too. It, you know, those things, doubts come into your head and fears come into your head because it's the ultimate fear. And um, it might come into our head individually. We don't push it on each other when we're talking or when we're conversing. Um, you know, so we, <laughs> we, um, you know, it's probably a good thing. We, we actually don't drink for for one of the reasons is because we one of us might have to be a live liver donor for Taylor she needs a liver transplant and so we don't we haven't drank socially in in two and a half years and there, there many a night that we both sit and go god we need a glass of wine you know or we'd love to have a drink and uh we we, we don't we wish but it's probably a good thing because you know, there's so much pressure. We'd probably become alcoholics if we didn't, if we didn't push that on ourselves, but that wasn't the reason we did it. I just, just know, I just know the amount of pressure we have on our, on our shoulders all the time individually. Um, and just personally, um, it's, it's overwhelming. And I think, I don't know, Ronnie and I just lean on each other in knowing that we're both under that type of pressure. We, we try to keep our mind off of it, but I think that's kind of part of the fight. It's right. easier for us to be in fight mode. Mm -hmm. And know. I think it's easier because she's older and she can participate in the decisions. But 
I think it would be a lot harder if you had a toddler or a, a younger child that couldn't participate. And then it's up to you to, to decide on a course of treatment and, and just given the decision, okay, are we going to do surgery or we're going to do chemo and which way it could take you. You could always regret your decision and claims could happen. And Yeah. So one of the things that um, you communicated and it's can it's childhood cancer awareness month. And one of the things was the funding, you know, and as you've shared, you know, the trials that are adult, tri- you know, the adult trials that are on the kids and, and everything you have um, a recommendation for those that, you know, want that are, are moved by your story and, and would like to, you know, funding is a big deal. Um, what would you recommend if people, you know, hear your story and they, they just want to do something, is there a website that they should go to or what would you recommend that they do? Um, uh, for, for Taylor's cancer, there is a direct website and it's very grassroots, um, oriented. It's a hundred percent goes to finding a cure and it's the main website, the main, um, uh, fundraising place for her cancer to find a cure. Um, it's called uh, the Fibrolamellar Cancer Foundation. It's www.fibrofoundation.org. And um, it's actually run by, um, by some parents that lost their son. It was created by a fibrolamellar patient who lost his life uh, 10 or 12 years ago and his friends that started it. But um, they, they run, they pay all the admin costs to run the foundation out of their company um, that they own, a financial company back east in Connecticut. And they, um, they do a wonderful job collaborating and trying to get clinicians together, um, researchers together uh, to find a cure for her cancer. So it's a it's a wonderful thing. It's it's obviously our lifeline. I mean, if I could give millions of dollars to them, I would because it would save my daughter. Of course, it's a selfish, selfish reason. Um, but that, that that's something that's uh, near and dear to our heart. And um, you know, it's it's we raise we raise and 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 Fairway Nation actually helps with this. Is we raise about four or five hundred dollars a month through um through fundraising efforts on on a grocery store on kroger um where in the fire and the fairway family actually the people in colorado signed up for it we got 78 families to sign up to give um they don't give they just sign up their rewards cards through uh king supers which is a kroger out here in the rocky mountain region and kroger actually donates that money for everything that they they do in groceries and it's just all it is is connecting the rewards card so I figured that out early in the stage, and um, Tim Moore was gracious enough to get me on a get me on um, a call, and a whole bunch of Fairway people signed up for it, and we're still getting money today. About you know, in between three hundred and five hundred dollars a month comes in from Kroger to this foundation, which is wonderful. Um, it's not a whole bunch of money, of course, not the the world, but it it means something. And I always thought if I could set that up in every um, region of Kroger around the nation that, you know, that all adds up. So that's just something that people can do. Um, but it's, it's an interesting thing, um, to, to, to raise money 
and have Kroger actually give that money as a large corporation. Um, but the other part is um, there's a lot of rare cancers out there like this. Giving money is ultimately the key thing and doing things to where bringing awareness to cancers are so important to give money because the money is what, if you can give it to the right place where a hundred percent is going to research and going to save these kids lives or save adult lives in cancer, you know, it's just so important. And in children cancer, only less than 200 million dollars from federal funding goes to childhood cancers out of the 5 billion that is given towards cancer research. So that is 4%. Um, 4% goes to childhood cancers out of the federal funding. Um, it's a little misleading because some of that money out of the 5 billion does go to certain researches, research that drags through all cancers. But it is a stark reminder that Childhood cancers aren't as big as adult cancers, so so there's less money in it. You know, there's less money in for the pharmaceutical companies. Um, so the research, clinical trials are just unfortunate that money is involved, and it is, um, and profitability is involved in the pharmaceutical companies and places like that that have big, big pockets to be able to create treatments less toxicity treatments for children. And this is all such great information. If somebody wanted to, you know, if a listener wanted to or has a connection to Kroger, Kroger in their community or would like to go to Kroger in their community, um, could they reach out to you to know how to do that? Or or could you want to leave your um, your email address so somebody could, you know, reach out to you if they had questions about that? Yeah, if anyone wants more information about signing up for Kroger, whether it's in um, the Rocky Mountain region particularly is where I have it set up. I have to set it up in individual regions, but I can do that. Um, and I have it, have it set up in California as well. Um, but it is um, T-Ray, T-R-A-Y, at fairwaymc.com. And um, you can email me with that because there's certain instructions that you need to get on the website with Kroger to to click on the foundation that you want. And another key, you can pick on other you can pick other foundations. Uh, there's other cancer foundations in the website that are approved for Kroger, and you can pick those. And people don't know that it's kind of a great thing behind the scenes that uh, Kroger gives money to uh, to nonprofits. And that's excellent because the one thing I think it, it's people just want to know where their money goes and to know that it goes directly to that particular um, cancer research and all of it goes to that is, is beautiful to know. I think that's, that to me, that's excellent. Yeah, it's wonderful. And by the way, the Kroger part, that's Kroger giving that money, not, not the person you're, you're telling Kroger that you want them to give two to 3% of everything you spend at their, at their grocery store to the charity of your choice. And Kroger just doesn't announce it. You have to go to the website and, and, and link your rewards card to it. And you pick the charity. It's something behind the scenes um, that, uh, that is very unique. And uh, so it is Kroger uh, giving that money, not the individual. And I can't think of the website off the top of my head, but there's a website you can check 
um, foundations and charities, they, they have a score and they're scored based on what they, their efficiency, um, how, where their money is donated, what's it used for, um, things like that. So you can go and check, and I, I can't think of it off the top of my head, but you can check the score of the foundation to see if they actually give money to research. All of this is just so such great information. I, I am excited to be able to share this with, with everybody to give them a greater understanding or at least the beginning of an understanding of um, you know your journey, the lack of funding, the need for funding, um, the idea that the clinical trials are for adults that they're using on children. I think that right there is, is so important for people to know and you don't know what you don't know. So this has been incredibly informative. Um, and I just want to say thank you everyone for listening until the end. And thank you, Ronnie and Tim for sharing, you know, your journey and all the information that you have learned with everyone and if you know someone who has been impacted by critical illness, cancer, illness, loss of a loved one, or has sustained physical trauma, and you'd like to help brighten their day, please contact us at fairwaycares.org. Um, if you know somebody who would like to be a Fairway Cares champion that would get the word out about what Fairway Cares does, please email me, sherry.anderson at fairwaymc.com. And we do encourage you to, uh, to reach out to Tim. If you have uh, an interest in a Kroger Foods or how to, how to donate, again, we thank you, Tim and Ronnie, for your time and uh, your heart and the opportunity to just learn about all that you've been through and what champions you are as you have uh, encouraged Taylor through this journey. Thank you, Sherry. Thank you. Thanks for helping bring awareness.